Live from Alachua, Florida, I'm Amrita Kaley. And I'm Nam Amrita. Welcome to Nectar Talks from the heart of New Raman Reiti, the largest Hare Krishna community in North America and the home of thousands of bhakti yoga practitioners. In our ongoing interviews, we dig deep into our search for loving connections with Krishna and each other. With you, we hope to uncover the real-life stories and inner journeys of our vibrant community of friends and special guests. Like bees searching for nectar, we seek to extract pearls of wisdom from how they live their lives and the lessons they can impart to us and our listeners. If you're seeking nectar, look no further. All right, let's get started. Hare Krishna, everyone. Welcome to our latest installment of Nectar Talks. My name is Amrita Kaley Devidasi, and I am reporting to you from the mountains of Western North Carolina. And our very special guest, uh, Pracharananda Prabhu, is reporting to us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So we are we are far away from home today, but. Um, Alachua is right there with us, and we're, we're so glad to be together with you all. How are you doing, Pracharananda? I'm doing well. I just completed about a 3,000-mile road trip to get back up here um, and so I could get the rest of my stuff. And this is the first thing I've done since I parked my car, so I'm very excited to be with you all today. Yeah, for our listeners, uh, Pracharananda... Prabhu texted me 15 minutes ago and said, I just parked. I'm ready. <laughs> so here we go. That's that's wonderful. Thanks so much for, for taking the time um, after a really long journey, which we might hear a little bit about later that I'm sure was, was fun um, to be with us. So of course, I want to start by hearing something about your background. Um, you know, I'm interested in a little bit about your upbringing. Like, what was your family culture like? Do you have siblings? Can you tell us something about that? I yeah, I can. Uh, uh, not not usually the first question I field in, a, in an interview like this, but um, I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I grew up in a, a fairly well-off middle-class family. I'd say I've got an older brother and an older sister. And uh, we were raised conservative Jews. And so uh, conservative Jews doesn't have anything to do with politics. Most conservative Jews, in fact, are pretty liberal politically. Um, okay. But uh, conservative Judaism is, is, a, is, a, is a branch of Judaism. There's Orthodox Jews, Reformed Jews, conservative Jews. There's probably more than that now that I'm not mm. aware of anymore. Um, and it's sort of um, religious, but not overly fanatical. Mm. So. Um, I went to Hebrew school a few days a week uh, in the evenings and most of the day on Sundays um, when my my own schedule uh, didn't accommodate that uh, much. My parents got me a tutor, like a private uh, Hebrew studies tutor twice a week uh, leading up to my bar mitzvah. And I also went to um, a, a Jewish overnight summer camp every summer of my life uh, from the time I was 10 <laughs> until the time I was 16, I think. So um that was, I, I don't know how much detail you want about what that culture was <laughs> like, but that's what, uh, that's what the culture was. Um, mm. And most of that came, I think, from my parents who were Orthodox Jews, so 
um, very religious people. Um, and so I was exposed to, um, uh, well, uh, let me, from a very young age. So, mm -hmm. oh, did you lose me? No, I'm here with you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Our internets are both, well, my internet's a little choppy. So we're, we're taking this, uh, in baby steps right now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, I can imagine that Jewish summer camp from the ages of 10 through 16 was highly formative for you and probably really, really fun. <laughs> um, well, it was definitely highly formative. Um, as I started to get older um, um, and started to kind of form my own identity, it actually became quite difficult uh, for me to be there uh, eight weeks. Uh, um, wow. in, in hindsight, um, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say anything disrespectful. Mm. Uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of these issues, uh, but it was, it was difficult. I'm, I'm a pretty sensitive person. Um, I don't, I, I don't, um, uh, I don't do well where there's a, like a lot of teasing and bullying mm. kind of okay. and stuff like that. And I know that I'm, I'm also often guilty of doing that myself. Uh, I think some of that's like a reaction formation, but there was a lot of that going on, especially, you know, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, there's a lot of young teenage boys trying to assert their dominance in various ways. And the la especially the last few years I was there um, was was quite formative, not in a in a um, in a in a pleasant way. Um, mm. But, you know, that was 30 years ago now. So I'm not mm -hmm. holding on to a lot of trauma from, from it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if this is relatable, but for me, my experiences in middle school and high school really catalyzed an interest in introspection. And is that sort of what you're referring to right now? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think I've always had an interest in introspective or I've always, introspection or I've always been an, um, an introspective person. And I identify myself as an introvert. And I know that mm. <laughs> people know me, they might find that surprising because I do like mm. to talk a lot. Um, but I only like to talk a lot for like a, a few hours a day. And then beyond that, <laughs> it's like, I need to get away from people. I mean, I just spent the last week saying basically nothing to anybody, mm. um, you know, which was pretty, uh, fun for me, but yeah, I think it did, um, cause me to go down a path of introspection to try to find like some inner strength and, um, it kind of forced me not to be emotionally dependent on other people, mm. which is something that. I think as I get older in life is, is becomes more and more valuable. So, yeah, I would say mm. that it, it did instigate mm. some introspection in that regard. So when, when did you, um, what happened first? I mean, did you go to college? Did you pursue your education or did you meet the devotees first? What's your story after high school? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I graduated high school in the summer of 1995 or the late spring of 1995, and um, I did go to college sort of immediately after that. I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, which is pretty much um, a school for hippies. Hippie college. <laughs> hippie college, uh, hippies and other right. other members of the counterculture, not only hippies. Okay. Um and uh, I originally, uh, so at the Evergreen State College, you didn't have to take any classes. You could do everything by <laughs> learning contracts. Um, but for the first year, Wait, you did have to take what, what a, is learning a learning contract? contract. 
A learning contract is when you identify a professor that you want to study from and you make a contract for what you're going to learn, how you're going okay. to learn it, and how it's going to be evaluated. Uh, but before you can do that, the college liked people to take one class as a freshman, which was a comprehensive <laughs> class. And I took a class called Water. Um, that was the name of the class. And it, uh, it was comprehensive. On Mondays, we studied uh, marine biology. On Tuesdays, we studied geology. On Wednesdays, we studied aquatic chemistry. And on, uh, on Thursdays, we studied environmental public policy making. And on Fridays, we had, a, we had a study day. And so that was really interesting, but it was, it was pretty much over my head at that time. Oddly enough, when I went back to college, that's exactly what I wound up studying anyway. I just wasn't ready for it at the time. I dropped out after a semester um, to aimlessly go hitchhiking around the United States. I just set out on the open road with my thumb and my backpack. And you Thought, were alone by yourself? Uh, well, when I first left Olympia, I was with my, my friend Vishnu John, uh, who also joined the Hare Krishna movement with me about a year later. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so we set out hitchhiking together from Olympia uh, shortly before Christmas in 1995. Okay. Um, and I wound up hitchhiking for the remainder of that school year. Um, and then then I decided to go back to college the, the following fall, um, but I switched my studies into the Native American Studies program, okay. uh, which was not studies about Native Americans. It was studies in a Native American pedagogy. Um, and so it was uh, very mm. community driven, but it was also focused on, on student learning. And I was studying all kinds of like occult practices, tarot reading, astrology, Reiki, um, you know, more esoteric forms of Buddhism, so it was it was um, traditional cultures, you know, not just it wasn't just Native American culture. It was traditional cultures around. The oh, world. it had very little. I mean, what I was studying had very little to do with uh, Native American culture in itself, other than the environment in which we were studying in, which was on. I can't remember if it was on a ten or twenty year cycle of themes, uh, but the theme the year that I took it was um, was home. Um, and the subtitle was, um, what was it? Home. Time, space, people, and place is what it was. Um, and so within that framework, I was doing a lot of very purposeful or intentional self-studies. Mm. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, we'd have these learning contracts with teachers. And part of the way that the teacher would evaluate us was, um, well, we could decide. And a lot of what I was doing at the time was autobiographical writing. Um, and autobiographical reflections on what I've been reading or practicing with these different, I'm going to say new agey uh, type, type things. And, um, and, then, and then the teachers and the students would meet at the end of the semester and they'd have a conference. There were no grades. They were just award credits based on the quality of the work that they were doing. And um, the guy who was supervising me we were having our, our meeting and he was, he really loved my writing. Like he, he really loved the honesty of it and um, sort of the gravity of it and, and all of that. But he told me that he was worried about me. And he told me that, um, he told me that he felt like if I kept going down the path I was going on, I wouldn't last on this planet for very long. And at that time, I was 19 when he told me this. At that time, I thought he recognized that I was soon to become an ascended master. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but in hindsight, I realized actually this guy was afraid I was going to kill myself. Right. 
either deliberately or accidentally, you know? And so we made an agreement uh, based on the outcome of that meeting that I was gonna, you know, in the next semester, I was gonna focus less on these sort of like intellectual psychic pursuits and more on just grounding myself. And so we decided I was gonna do an individual learning contract to live in a monastery for six months. Um, and so I set out on a search to find a monastery that I wanted no to No way. Yeah. I, I can't believe I've never told you this story before, but uh, anyway. Oh my gosh. And yeah, so we decided I wanted to live in a monastery. I wanted to become a monk. That was my career goal when I was 19. Um, and I couldn't find any monasteries that I wanted to live in. They were all filled with, um, and I, this was a non-denominational venture. I looked at Catholic monasteries and Buddhist monasteries and uh, none of them really did it for me. They were all filled with, with divorced middle-aged men, which is exactly mm. what I am now. So that's interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I kind of gave up. I was kind of resigned to go back to college like a regular person in the fall. And so in the summertime, I went to this rainbow gathering outside of, um, well, it was in central Oregon. Um, and there I met the devotees and they had a monastery for me to move into. And so and where was that? Which one? Uh, that was in Eugene, Oregon. So that also kind of unfolded over a few days. Uh, the first day I was at the Rainbow Gathering, I met this guy who I believe was a disciple of Kirtanananda. Mm -hmm. um, his rainbow name was Soaring Turkey. His initiated name was Garuda. So there's some... Oh, yes, Garuda Prabhu, the one who was in uh, Tallahassee, no? I don't know about all that. Okay. Not the Prabhupada disciple, Garuda. Okay. This is okay. a, someone our, my age. Um, anyway, okay. he had a table there that said free spiritual books. And so I went up and I there was this, there's one small white book with this picture. I don't want to get too much in the details, but he had an Ishopanishad. I thought it said isopanasid. And I asked him, what does dry <laughs> isopanasid mean? And he said, it means come here, sit down, shut up and listen. Which, <laughs> that sounds like the Garuda Prabhu that I think you're talking yeah, about. It could be. That's not what Ishapadishad means. Anyway, he gave me the book and he gave me a bookmark with it. And on the front of the bookmark was um, a, an explanation of what Satchit Ananda Vigraha and the mm. first verse of the Brahma Samhita means. And that kind of blew my mind. Um, and then there was also an explanation of the Maha Mantra. This was on the front of the bookmark. And on the back of the bookmark was this plea to get people to stop smoking, uh, which I was doing a lot of at the time. And, um, but, and I knew that this wasn't good for me and I knew that I didn't want to do this anymore. And so this bookmark said, anytime you want to smoke a cigarette or whatever, chant this mantra instead. And so I started doing that and that worked. How about that? Um, <laughs> and so I, for days I was wandering around just chanting Hare Krishna in my head, not knowing anything other than what this bookmark had told me. Um, and then at some point I realized that I wanted to chant this, this mantra, like I somehow knew that this mantra was supposed to be chanted with other people. Um, and so I found a group of the Hari bowlers. <laughs> they called the themselves Hari that? Are the, the followers of um, Siddhasvarupa Ananda, Chris Butler. Okay, uh, okay. The dude in Hawaii, uh, the dude who uh, Tulsi Gabbard was born into his his little sub sub movement. Let's okay. Um, and so they were playing djembes and guitars and chanting Hare Krishna around the campfire. And that was pretty attractive. But so I started doing that with them in the evenings at the Rainbow Gathering. Uh, but then I also noticed that every, between the kirtans, they would sneak off behind the tent and smoke some dope. And I somehow knew that Hare Krishnas weren't supposed to be doing that. So, mm. and also this bookmark 
like something didn't quite mm. add up the Hari Bowlers and me and the bookmark. And then a couple of days later um, came the ISKCON people, um, captained by uh, Pritu Das Adhikari, who in his um, very specific personal way set up his tent in his camp right across the path <laughs> from the Hari Bowlers. <laughs> Um, and he had all these brahmacharis with him and he had these little juggernaut deities and i was pretty and um i went to a kirtan in the evening right when it was ending i kind of wandered in and uh he wrapped up the kirtan and said that they have a program in the mornings also at 6 a.m that was attractive to me i always like waking up mm. early in the morning and so i went to the morning program at 6 a.m and I can remember quite distinctly, it was the smell of the Keshar Chandan incense that the Pujari was offering to these little rainbow juggernaut deities. And I was just immediately like mm. hooked. Take and me so, with you. Huh? Take me to your ashram. Yeah, no, it's like I'd been, I'd been burning all this Nag Champa for the last few years. <laughs> and then finally, like there was this, this pure Keshar Chandan mm. incense from her and and it like, I was like, this is real spiritual incense mm. now. <laughs> and so I stuck mm. around. I told Preeti what my story was, and he invited me to move into his ashram in Eugene, Oregon. How long uh, were so you there for? The uh, well, I was only in Eugene for a couple of weeks. Um, a couple of weeks later, we piled. Uh, so at that rainbow gathering, uh, Preeti made 11 devotees. So I was not the only one that he shaved up there. He shaved up 11 people, which was like, a you know, nobody nobody has done that before or since frankly and this is um this is uh literally shaved up not just figuratively he shaved me up for the first time yeah literally. okay <laughs> uh, he shaved me up for the first time uh, right before we were going to distribute the evening prashadam to about five thousand people so he had this hay bale and a harmonium on it and he was leading kirtan and at one point he stopped and he was wearing this vest and at one point he stopped leading the kirtan and he walked over to me and he reached into his vest pocket and pulled out a buzzer and just started shaking <laughs> up right there in front of everybody. Oh, and then he reached into his other pocket and pulled out another buzzer and started shaking <laughs> up with both buzzers. And then he started dancing like with the buzzers in the air like this with the biggest <laughs> smile you can imagine. <laughs> And so uh, about a month after that, he loaded us all into the into his VW bus, 11 of us into uh, uh, like a 1978 Volkswagen bus. And we drove all the way to Los Angeles from Eugene, Oregon for the Rathiatra. Okay. And then we drove to another rainbow gathering in Colorado, um, where we were for Janmastami uh, before going back to Eugene. And then very quickly after that, I was moved to Seattle. Uh, for book distribution. Basically, as soon as I finished reading the Bhagavad Gita, I was out there on the street passing out to people. So maybe this was a lot different from what you had anticipated six months in a in a in an ashram being or like a, a convent setting or something. You were you were traveling, you were going to festivals, you were on book distribution. <laughs> yeah, it was a little different. Um, it was Hare Krishna style. Was your was, it was your definitely Hare Krishna style, but you know what? It all made so much sense to me. Yeah. You know, the um, the Bhagavad Gita as it is. That um, that wasn't the first time I had gotten one of Prabhupada's books. Actually, about a year before then, when I was still studying, I went to camp I went to the campus of college early one day. I had gotten into a big fight with my roommate, not a fist fight, but a verbal altercation with my roommate. And I was in a really bad mood. And I was just sitting on a bench in this like in the square of the student union, and this really bright-faced, orange-clad brahmachari just ran up to me. 
and, and plop the Bhagavad Gita in my hand. And I knew I'd always wanted to read the Bhagavad Gita because I was studying world religious literature, but I could never find a copy of the Bhagavad Gita that I like, that I trusted. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't interested in reading some jackasses translation of the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> um, and he put this Bhagavad Gita in my hands and I knew immediately this is the Bhagavad Gita that I want to read. And he asked me for a donation and I had no dollars. <laughs> zero dollars i had three cents to my name i reached into my pocket and i pulled out three pennies and he wouldn't give me the bhagavad gita for three pennies but he did give me a nectar of instruction um which i read and i became so engrossed in the nectar of instruction that i skipped the whole day of school and just sat on the bench and read the book and especially the first verse of the nectar of instruction spoke you know, talking about the pushes of the mind and mm. the demands of the senses. And I knew all these hippies that I was living with, you know, were kind of wanting to go down a spiritual path, but we didn't really have it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that verse really clarified to me why we didn't really have it. And mm. that was about eight months before I met the devotees. And at that point, I actually started practicing all of the regular principles. It was all right there in the first verse, in the purports of the first verse. And so I, I'd already started off on the monastic path you know, before I found the monastery. And then the dude that sold me the book was also at the Rainbow Gap. <laughs> wow, and you, the you dude that sold me the book is still my best friend. He lives here in Edmonton. I'm going to be uh, staying in his house for the next five days. So he's got okay. four kids and eight gerbils and two cats. And, <laughs> you know, it's too much. But um, so that's a lifelong relationship mm. that I've had with him and his wife now. Um, and so seeing him there also set my mind at ease that made sense because also with the nectar of instruction, I had no idea that this book had anything to do with Krishna. I hadn't, I didn't understand what KRSNA mm. with the dots under it meant. <laughs> what yeah. is this? Yeah. Yeah. What is this? <laughs> I, it made no sense to me. And mm -hmm. really anything after the first two or three verses made no sense to me. But then when I met Pritu and the devotees at the rainbow gathering, it all made perfect sense to me. And it was a very easy decision to drop out of school again and move into the monastery. Did you, that's what I was going to ask. Did you go back to school after your six months or, or was that, was no. that your, the end of your time there? That was my, that was the end of my career at the, um, at the Evergreen State College. And I, in fact, I called my parents to tell them what I was doing and they were on a cruise in Bali. And um, this was back in the day of like analog answering machines. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, le I being a genius, I left a message on their answering machine while they were in Bali telling them that I had moved into the Hare Krishna temple, which was among the stupidest things I've ever done. <laughs> well, when we're 19 and 20, that's like, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So they got back from Bali freaking out, you know, called me on, called mm. me up at the temple screaming at me. My dad's like screaming at me mm. on the phone and he was paying for my whole life at the time, tuition, mm. room, board, food, all of it. And he like demanded to know why I would do such a thing. And I told him in a very flippant and arrogant way that I'm renouncing the material world. And he <laughs> said, great, you can renounce the tuition check I just sent you. But it was too late because I'd already given it to the BBT. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Did he renounce you after that for some time? Uh, they well, tried, but, there? you know. Too, too lovable. Children are just pretty lovable. They're pretty lovable too, yeah. Um, you know, when I, God when I first them. dropped out of college to go hitchhiking, um, they, my parents are pretty emotionally intelligent people, I'd mm -hmm. say for, 
people of their generation. And so they knew that they couldn't stop me and they knew that they couldn't find me either. Uh, and so they got themselves a toll-free phone number, a 1-800 number, and asked me to call them once a week just to let them know that I was okay. And I thought that was a completely reasonable request, especially since they were paying for the whole thing. So I did that uh, for religiously, and I still do that. Um, but one point, after I lived in the ashram for about a, maybe a year or two, they, they really were you know, trying to get me out of there. Like they were talking to deep programmers and like my dad even like came wow. out to Seattle to try to get me on a plane to come back with him. They were worried and about you. Yeah, very worried mm -hmm. about me. Um, and after he came to visit me, it was such an unpleasant experience. I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna not talk to them anymore if that's, mm -hmm. you know, how it's gonna be. And after I didn't call them, after religiously calling them once a week for 18 mm -hmm. months or two years or whatever, I stopped calling them. And after about a month, they called me freaking out. And I told them that, um, you know, they don't have to agree with the decisions that I'm making in my life, but if they want to be part of my life, they have to shut up about it, mm. you know, and they did. And, mm. you know, and we've really had a wonderful relationship ever since then, frankly. Um, the other, the other thing that helped is that they did, they did go see a D programmer in Boston uh, to see if they would like come kidnap me. And my mom told, I found out about this like 15 years later, um, <laughs> casually over dinner one night. Um, and my mom told me that they went and they talked to this deep programmer for about three hours and they, they both left his office thinking exactly the same thing, which was that there's no way I was as crazy as that guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Thank God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a, that's such an interesting time. And I feel like a lot of us who come into Krishna consciousness, especially around that age, share sort of a similar experience with our parents. And it's, it's so hard to know how it feels for them and also it's so hard for them to know how it feels for us so it's just like a kind of like a perfect storm for a for a little while it sounds like yeah well you know i have to say that the uh, the devotees that i was with were good in that they always encouraged me to keep in touch with my parents you know they didn't and i, I know you know in the past that might not have been the case in the Hare krishna movement mm. or in, and maybe some other environments in the Hare krishna movement but um yeah, no, nobody ever preached to me that my parents were demons and I shouldn't talk to them. Right. That. In fact, just the opposite, you know, mm. and I think eventually over time they saw that this wasn't just a phase that I was going through, first of all, like this is something that's real, mm. um, you know, but it wasn't until quite recently, um, I, my mother quite recently read um, Yogeshwar's, Yogeshwar Prabhu's bio, uh, biography of Srila Prabhupada, Swami in a Strange Land. And it finally clicked with her after nearly 25 years. It finally clicked with her who Srila Prabhupada was. And so now she's, you know, gradually getting up. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Kudos to them. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So, um, so then what? I mean, you, you joined the temple. How long were you in the temple and what ended up bringing you back to academia to, to end up getting, I mean, you are a doctor of three things. Can you tell us what those three things are? It's not well, the, de geology. the department I've got my doctorate in is the department of um, uh, hydrogeology, mineralogy, and geochemistry from the Freie Universität in Berlin, the free university in Berlin. Uh, that means free thinking. It doesn't mean it costs. Um, <laughs> Well, so, I mean, I was in, I, I was in the Brahmacharya Ashram f from 1997 until 2004. 
Um, and then in 2004, uh, Pritu also okay. initiated me the first time, uh, resigned to put it um, euphemistically. Uh, um, and, you know, I was kind of relieved when that happened, uh, to be totally honest, because I felt like, um, I felt, I felt after a while, I felt kind of disempowered uh, mm. living in the Brahmacharya Ashram. I felt like I was getting older. Um, I had uh, uh, accumulated some life experience by that point, traveling um, different countries, many different states, many different temples, many different people. And I just didn't um, feel like I had any agency in my own life anymore. Mm. Um, and so when, you were ready. Yeah, I was ready, to, ready move to move on to something on. else. Yeah. Um, you know, really, the only two options were you could be a brahmachari, you could be married. So I explored getting married, and I did get married. Um, and I decided to go back to college really originally as a financial matter. Like, if I'm going to have a wife mm. and kids, I'm going to need to have a job. And that was at University of Florida? Well, yeah. And then so when I left, when I left home, my parents retired to Florida. And so I went to the University of Florida. First, I went to Santa Fe College um, to finish up my lower division undergraduate credits. So only because I got in-state tuition. That was the only deciding factor. Um, but then I got hooked up with the Krishna House and Kalakanta Prabhu and you. And, and Yeah, uh, I mean, we met in I think <laughs> probably 2006. So this was yeah. relatively soon after you you left the brahmacharya ashram yeah right yeah yeah okay yeah um yeah and i studied psychology for one semester i thought uh so towards the end of my life as a brahmachari i also did two years or the end of my first life as a brahmachari i should say um, <laughs> um i also did two years of trauma therapy training in holland uh, a type of trauma therapy called somatic experiencing uh, which is very similar to Vipassana meditation. It's very much focused on the felt sense and negotiating feelings, not emotions, but actual feelings like hot, cold, mm. shaky, like how does the body feel? Um, and I thought psychology would kind of be a good transition from, you know, a very devout devotional life to having a job. It turns out that I hated studying psychology. Oh, it was the worst. Um, <laughs> And in a moment of revelation, hmm. uh, I decided to go back to studying geology. Um, what, and... what, what was the moment? What was the moment of revelation? Because to get a doctorate in, ge in, in geology subfields right. is a big deal. You're leading me down a rabbit hole here, but. Okay, I, can you summarize it? I can. I mean, this, oh, this is fascinating. Edited, I guess. Okay, so um, shortly after I got married, uh, my now ex-wife, the lovely Katrin Vimmer, um, who's probably listening to this, um, we took a trip. Uh, we took a trip to the Pacific Northwest, uh, which is like a spiritual homeland of mine. Like I really love it there. Mm, okay. I hit it there in a couple of weeks. And we went up to the Elwha Hot Springs one weekend um, when it was still like the mountains were completely covered with snow. There was nobody there. It was just mm. the two of us in this like super magical environment. And we had such a great time that we decided to go back there the next week except in the next week, all of the snow, like springs sprung in a major way. So all of the weekend warriors from Seattle had also made their way out to <laughs> hot springs. And it was like, it was like a free for all. <laughs> um, and because I had lived there for a while, I, I knew where there was a secret hot spring. So we hiked up a little further up to the mountain, but I noticed like as we were getting there, the trail was starting to become like really strewn with trash. 
and it looked like fresh trash, like not trash that had been revealed by the snow melt, like this, what is this? And we got up to the secret hot spring that I knew, and there was this group of, I don't know, maybe six or seven US Marines sitting in there with a gallon jug of Jack Daniels and a huge frying pan filled with bacon. Oh. This was like eight o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, oh, this is totally disgusting. I don't want to get in here. And I, I, this is how I remember it. But I turned over to look at Katrin to see if she wanted to like get in the hospital <laughs> with these people thinking I'm out of here. And she was already like completely naked, like jumping into, <laughs> like she was completely unfazed by this. It was like, ooh, we're getting in. I'm like, all right, we're getting in. And so we got in and we hung out and they were kind of cool, I guess, but they kept pitching cigarette butts on the ground, which was pissing me off. And so when we were leaving, I got up and I picked up 50 cigarette butts and I held them in my hand open to them. And I said, I started saying, look, I don't smoke, but I care about these forests. And so I'm just picking up garbage where I see it. And as I was trying to ask them nicely to pick up after themselves, I really felt like my feet chakras opened up and like the whole earth just like like started trembling and the whole earth like started speaking through me at these people like severely chastising them and i was kind of blown away by this uh then we left promptly um and i had this i had this realization that people are all crazy there's nothing including myself you know there's nothing really i can do to help that and i, I would rather use my energy to help heal the earth and so I decided to study geology. So th this is interesting summer. because that, <laughs> because that sounds quite mystical, and it was. Um, yeah. And then I was looking at your Facebook profile, and um, it says that for the for the University of Alberta, you you work as a, um, a geomancer. Geomancer. So, so if that's true, okay. I looked up. I looked up that because I don't know what that is. It says it's a method of divination that interprets markings on the ground or the patterns formed by tossing handfuls of soil, rocks, or sand. Sand. So that also sounds mystical. Is is what you do anything like that? Or tell us more. What is what's a geomancer? Well, that is a geomancer, and and I do do a lot of that. I don't know if that's what they pay me for. Um, uh, but what they do pay me for, at least for the next few months, is to do uh, geothermal energy research. So, um, usually we read rocks to see where they came from, or how old they are, or how they formed, or what they're made of. I can I can hear you now. All right. Yeah. Um, and so what I do is I use tools of geology to try to find hot water under the ground that can be used to make sustainable electricity. And this was my idea oh. of, of doing something to heal the earth was why mm. not try to, you know, I mean, if you're following the news, you may be aware that, you know, the Western part of the United States is in the middle of like really an apocalyptic heat wave. Right. Um, this has been predicted by scientists for decades. And, mm -hmm. you know, now it's not a prediction that global warming is something that's going to happen mm -hmm. to us in the future. It's here it's right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so what can we do? What can I do personally to um, try to combat that or try to react to that? And getting involved in renewable energy sciences, I think, has been a good way of doing that. Um, but ultimately, I think it's, it's also limited. And I, I feel like... A, I started to have a feeling that there was more that I could be doing, um, which which is leading me really to a career change midstream here.
So I, I, um, I want to get back to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was too early to, to, <laughs> no, no, it's <laughs> actually to that topic. Yeah. It's actually, um, it's perfect timing, but I want to step back for a second. Um, and talk for a minute about, about your place in personally in your Krishna consciousness and within ISKCON as a scientist and as mm. someone who, you know, um, basically what you just shared with us is that you're on the front lines of, of climate change um, engineering, basically. I don't yeah. know if you would call it that, but yeah. so um, I guess what I wanted to talk about and what you wanted, what you expressed wanting to talk about is something, you know, that you referred to as scientific literacy within yes. our and how that's something that's really important to you. So um, before I ask you some specific questions about modern science and Vedic science, can you tell me what what is it that you mean by scientific literacy is important? Well, uh, that's a great question and thank you for that. Um, so first of all, I think it's important to understand what is what is what is science um, mm. to begin with. Uh, the word science really has to do with knowledge, and in many ways can be synonymous with Veda. The word science, or maybe not synonymous, but analogous to the word Veda. Um, people predominantly, I think, think of science as a set of facts that's been accumulated over the years. Um, and it is that, but more so than that, science is a method of learning things and figuring things out. Um, and there are many similarities between the scientific method and the pramanas of Sanskrit epistemology. Pramanas are different types of evidence. Um, Shabda, of course, is the main one, hearing from an authorized source. And science involves so much hearing from authorized sources. You know, until people in the scientific community really get into graduate school, none of what they're learning is science is realized knowledge. It's all stuff they're learning from a textbook or from a professor. So that's a form of shabda. Mm. It appeals to people because it also has anuman. Anuman is logic um, and inference. And there are rules of logic and inference. Um, and those rules is what makes it bona fide, you know, because you can have your own thought process and you can have what you think is logical and reasonable. And then somebody else over here has something else mm. that he, what he thinks is logical or they think is logical and reasonable. And they're two different things. And so in this way, nobody can ever really come to any agreement on anything. And so there are rules of logic. Um, and then there's also pratyaksha, which is direct observation. And most of the scientific methodology mm. is based on direct observation. And not only observation of things, but quantifiable observations of things. Like we can assign mass and quantity mm volume, velocity, you know, things that have numbers to them. Uh, and so science is a methodology of learning things once we've recognized that our senses are in fact limited. So the scientific method also starts with the Krishna conscious premise mm -hmm. that our senses are limited and therefore we cannot ever understand everything. Um, and so I often, when I give presentations, I often talk about the asymptotes of knowledge. An asymptote is a curve that approaches a limit, but never touches mm. the limit. And that's what human knowledge is like. We know th some things. We're not completely embedded in ignorance. Uh, Prabhupada even wrote in the introduction to the Srimad Bhagavatam that we are not in the darkness of ignorance. We've made so much advancement mm. in medicine and science and technology and these things. But he said, there's a pinprick. 
Um, and that's because in that mm. pinprick, in that gap between what we know and what is reality, the scientist takes a position of skepticism. I don't, I don't know, let me question, let me investigate, let me find out. The devotee takes a position of faith. Mm. You know, I don't know, but this has been revealed to me. This is what's been revealed to me. And so therefore devotional knowledge is not really science. It's not Veda, it's Vedanta. It's a conclusion of knowledge. And the conclusion of knowledge is that Krishna is the Supreme Personality mm. of Godhead and we are all part and parcels <laughs> of him and we are related to him in a mood of service. That is Vedanta, that is conclusive knowledge. Um, and, but even that's not conclusive knowledge because in that context of me being a, a servant of Krishna or me having a, um, a, an eternal relationship with Krishna, that is in and of itself unlimited. So there's no end to the exploration mm -hmm. that I can engage in, in my relationship with Krishna. So um, science is a methodology. Science is a method of knowing things um, that involves observation and involves quantification. It's cumulative, which means it builds on itself over time. We would not have had an Albert Einstein without an Isaac Newton. We would mm -hmm. not have had an Isaac Newton without a Ptolemy, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's also tentative. It's subject to change. Um, and a good scientist will acknowledge when they're wrong um, and move on. And a good mm -hmm. scientist will know that their science will never prove positively anything uh, because that's not the way science works. So um, science is a methodology that, and based on that methodology, we have accumulated quite a, a, a large body of facts about the world. We know a lot about the world um, that we live in. How much of it is relevant to spiritual life? Not mm. as much as we would hope, but it, that doesn't mean it's ignorance uh, mm. in that sense. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so it sounds like the pursuit of science or maybe the... Um the point of view of a scientist is explore is explorative and like you said ever-changing and very vast so maybe the assumption that science maybe maybe from someone who's not a scientist or somebody who um who doesn't understand that would think that science scientists are presenting science as fact um they're presenting theory as fact and that's where it's wrong that's where um that's why we might feel as devotees that there is big resistance against it or a reason to stay away sort of insecurity about understand becoming right. scientifically literate yes and so and that's why i think scientific literacy in the devotional community is so important in fact is because um and this is not something that's um limited to only the vaishnav devotee community but it's something that i think all religions I mean, religious groups have to contend with because what do you do when the knowledge of our scriptures contradicts mm. the knowledge that our science priests are, are telling us today? And there are certainly a whole boatload of dogmatic scientists out there mm. um, mm -hmm. who, who do think what they're preaching is the conclusive truth and do not understand how science works like that. Um, but for devotees, this is important for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, um, Prabhupada often presented the practice of Krishna consciousness itself as a scientific process. Mm. And so what does that mean? Yes. Um, if we don't really understand deeply what Prabhupada meant by that and what that means, 
we can quickly become guilty of co-opting the word science for our own purposes. Um, and anybody who is, has an af, half an education that we're trying to preach to will be able to see through that mm, and not, mm-hmm. not look very not respect sophisticated it. or intelligent. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when Prabhupada said Krishna consciousness is a scientific process, what did he really mean by that? Um, Prabhupada also spoke very strongly against modern sciences. Um, and, um, and I think he did this for two reasons. Number one is that he wanted to, uh, he, he, he did not object to the results of the science. He was ob- object to godlessness in science. He objected to the idea that people would use science as a way to eliminate God from the equation. Mm-hmm. He also wanted to inoculate innocent people against mm-hmm. this godlessness. Um, and so most of the people in the world are innocent. They don't know much of anything um, other than how to feed themselves and how to clothe themselves, mm. clothe, them, clothe themselves, you know, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. These are the only things that most people are really good at. And most people mm. aren't even really good at those. But, um, and so, and then we hear this preaching, it's in the media, it's in the science, it's in our classrooms, it's in our textbooks that, you know, God is more and more removed from the equation. And so Prabhupada wanted to inoculate people against that as well, which is another reason why he preached so strongly against scientists. But if you get into the details of what Prabhupada was preaching against scientists, I think you can see that the information he was getting from his disciples was not very accurate. Um, hmm, and so interesting. The, the, yeah, so the... Um, in many cases, and this is also true with a lot of the um, the dialectical materialism discussions or dialectical spiritualism discussions he had where devotees would engage Prabhupada in discussions on Western philosophy, mm. but they wouldn't accurately represent mm. because the devotees themselves were not educated. So the biggest mm. one in science is, um, you know, in evolution is the idea that we evolved from monkeys. And I hear many devotees even still today will say this and then shoot this down. And what they're doing is they're creating a false straw man argument. Uh, the, a, a straw man argument is an argument that people make specifically to defeat. But a false straw man argument is that the argument they make isn't, nobody's arguing this. So when we say humans evolved from monkeys and that's absurd, nobody in the evolution community is saying that humans evolved from monkeys. That's not what the theory of evolution says. So that's an example of scientific illiteracy that runs really throughout the Hare Krishna. Mm -hmm. And then we go out and we preach this, we try to explain this to people, we try to make ourselves look so intelligent by look at this great argument I've crafted against evolution, but we don't actually understand the first thing about what evolution theory teaches Mm. that's scientific illiteracy and that's harmful to Mm. our movement um you know another and then the other big example of course is the big bang and uh we taught we taught we taught the big bang at the bhaktivedanta academy this year side by side with teaching about bumandala and Mm. the cosmic manifestation as it's described in the second and third cantos of the Bhagavatam. And if you look at these things qualitatively, actually, you can see that the Big Bang is described perfectly in the Bhagavatam. 
Are you referring to how um, Vishnu is breathing out and all of the universes are coming out of his pores? Not only that. Um, and so it starts with that. Uh, the, and the Big Bang Theory holds that in the beginning of the universe, all the forces in the matter and matter in this universe were unmanifested. And then suddenly they manifested themselves um, and, are, and are expanding. And not only that, but the order in which material energy appears according to the Big Bang Theory is the same exact sequence as it is in the Bhagavatam. The thing that the scientists don't understand is that this point of singularity, that's Krishna. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's really the only thing that's missing, but devotees, and I'm speaking generally, of course, um, you know, we'll go, how can something appear out of nothing? Or if the mm. universe is expanding, what's it's expanding into? And these are all arguments or discussion points made by people who don't really understand the first thing about the Big Bang Theory. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even a seventh and eighth grader can understand this if it's explained to them properly. Like we, we had many students who, you know, they're, they're good offspring of their parents. Mm. Um, and they've heard what they hear in the devotional community and they, they never, nobody ever taught them anything about the Big Bang. Um, and so I, I had many students who in the beginning, you know, had this opinion that the Big Bang is all nonsense. But mm-hmm. by the end of this, mm-hmm. a, a quarter of learning this stuff, they can see, well, actually, first of all, there is scientific evidence to support the Big Bang theory. There's quite a lot of it. And second of all, the Big Bang theory in and of itself does not contradict anything that's in the Bhagavatam. It's just not complete how important it is as devotees to be scientifically literate. And what I'm hearing from you too, is that understanding the real science, I feel is the key to not feeling so polarized as a devotee in the modern world, like so, so separated from, or if I'm, um, if I'm a good devotee, it means that I have some, some something against or some distance from modern scientific theory Um, whereas instead it can it can become non-threatening or even in the case of like you said the big bang when you're talking about the point of singularity being krishna it's like we have the point of singularity and and they're they're also saying that they're just saying they don't know what that is yes right so so neither so they're correct and we have the full picture but but what they're teaching us or what you're teaching us is not unimportant. It, it's also um, can be very valuable for us. Well, I, I think that gets into another, yeah, I, yes, uh, I agree with your reflection. Um, but, but I think that gets into another reason why Prabhupada spoke so strongly against science is that first of all, the word science doesn't, didn't really appear in human language until very recently, um, until really the 1800s. Um, what Galileo or Isaac Newton or, you know, and any of the great scientists, uh, pre-industrial scientists, really, what they called what they were doing was natural philosophy. Um, And Mm. so these were all religious Mm. people. Um, You know, Galileo was an active member of the church until they Mm. threw him out. Copernicus was a priest. Um, Mm. Isaac Newton was a very religious person, a lifelong brahmachari. Mostly he was a lifelong brahmachari because nobody liked him. But but yeah, these were all religious people. And what they thought they were doing was they thought they were investigating how God's creation worked. And they very much had God in the center of the center of Mm. equation. And we can see, you know, uh, Prabhupada one time said that 
we as ISKCON can learn a lot from the Catholic Church. And on the sort of the first order, he meant that from a managerial perspective, like he wanted us to learn within ISKCON how the Catholic Church is managed because they've done a pretty good job. Um, but another thing that the Catholic Church has done a really excellent job of over the last half a millennia is funding education. You know, to become a Catholic priest or to become a Catholic monk requires really PhD level knowledge of theology. We don't do that in ISKCON. You know, if, if you can kind of keep it together with the regular principles for a year, you can get initiated in ISKCON and you don't really need to know anything. Um, and so the Catholic Church has a very rich tradition of education. They also have a very rich tradition of research. And even today, they fund some of the largest and most respected religious institutions, and in, uh, I'm sorry, academic institutions in the world. Um, Notre Dame, Georgetown, uh, Loyola Marymount, these are all Catholic institutions. Um, and so th the Catholic Church very much emphasizes science and, invest and investigatory type learning. Where this got off the rails, I think, from a modern perspective and also from the perspective of, of Srila Prabhupada is that modern science um, really arises out of the work largely of Francis Bacon, um, who really was the father of the scientific method. And his idea was that using science, we can solve all of humanity's mm. problems. You know, we can use science to make our lives more comfortable. And that is a fundamentally misguided proposition. It's um, his own, we, that's actually a philosophy, right? Using science, we can solve all of man's problems. Like it's that, almost... is, that is Baconism, yeah. Okay. Uh, and not the kind of bacon that those Marines <laughs> in the, the Hoffman's reading. Both that not so good. And that's misdirected in so many ways. And you know, Prabhupada would agree that the purpose of life is to be happy. Mm. Um, a, an Indian life member one time asked Srila Prabhupada, <laughs> In a room conversation, Swamiji, what is the purpose of life? Prophet said the purpose of life is to enjoy. Mm. But the problem is, is that we don't mm. know who is the enjoyer, you know, and we think that I am the enjoyer and I'm supposed to enjoy through the vehicle of my body. And then we use science to try to improve that. And the result of this is that we have actually are on the brink mm -hmm. of destroying our planet or at least destroying our planet's ability to um, sustain human life. Um, because we are not the bodies, you know, we are something else. And that same scientific process or that same process of natural philosophy or of investigation can be applied to the soul also. And this is a completely yogic practice, um, uh, you know, the study of the self. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So we can apply scientific methodology and scientific thought processes to our own devotional lives. And in my opinion, this brings Krishna consciousness out of the realm of just any other dogmatic religion out there to something that is actually realized knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, like, like Prabhupada or mm -hmm. Swami often said that Krishna consciousness is not an artificial imposition of the mind. It's not something that I hear and I believe because I heard it. Right. It's something that actually I can awaken and experience myself. And that's always been sort of the, um, the connecting thread for me when it comes to sort of Vedic science or, you know, the fifth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, when it, when it feels super over my head, 
what I, what I um, say to myself is I have experiential evidence that the Maha Mantra works, that yeah. the philosophy implemented in my life is actually changing me in drastic ways over yeah. a short period of time. So if that is true, and I've, I've, that's been proven to myself to be true, and I see it happening all around me and other people, then I can accept to be true that w- which I can't understand. It's not so much of a stretch anymore. Yeah, you have, or we all have faith affirming experiences and those experiences are so strong. There's such deep samskaras that they also create space for doubts that don't disturb the devotional mm. creeper. You know, mm. if we, if we can, I, I remember um, my, 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 Guru Maharaj, Krishna Chetraswami, he, in his last Vyasa Puja offering, he was talking about knowing Krishna, you know, and when will I know Krishna and when will I, you know, this is often the lament of a, of a devotee is when will I know hmm. Krishna? And well, the fact is that we know Krishna right now, you know, like I'm having a relationship with Krishna right now. Um, and actually I'm always having a relationship with Krishna. It's a question of, you know, are my eyes open to that? Are my hmm. ears open to that? You know, what is the depth of that experience? Um, but there's nowhere in the universe I can go where Krishna isn't. And there's no time <laughs> when I'm not completely dependent on Krishna's mercy to do anything. Um, and so we do know Krishna. And I think it's also important for devotees to understand that. Um, like we're constantly striving to go uh, deeper and deeper into our spiritual life. And that's good because we want to search after Krishna. But we shouldn't do that um, because we feel like something's lacking. Mm. Um, in our lives like Krishna is here with us right now and um, maybe sometimes in our search for Krishna we forget that he's standing right in front of us Mm. or right next to us Um, but anyway the point that I was making is is that if our experience of Krishna is strong enough then we can entertain all doubts that may Mm -hmm. arise in our without fear without Without fear fear and without uh, being damaged by it Mm. Um, it's the, in my opinion, it's the person of weak faith that cannot handle Mm -hmm. challenge. And I think that's why a lot of devotees push back so strongly against science is that Mm. they feel very much threatened by this. Um, and rather than, uh, there's this really great letter from Srila Prabhupada, I think to Rupanuga Prabhu, I don't, I don't know, it's from 1972 where Prabhupada was talking about wanting to reach out to more educated classes of society. And he was saying that educated people may be puffed up because of their learning. And, and he said, that's all right. They deserve it. <laughs> or they've earned it, something like this. And then he says, we should follow the example of Lord Chaitanya, who sat mm. and listened to Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya preach for three days, even though the man was speaking nothing but nonsense. And Lord Chaitanya just sat there and listened to him. And really what, the, what Prabhupada's speaking there is the principle of empathy. You know, Lord Chaitanya wasn't agreeing with what Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya was saying, but he was listening to him and he was listening to him with enough attention and with enough depth and integrity so that he could respond properly Mm -hmm. and not just come out with this smashing mood, but so that he could really deeply understand what is this man preaching and what can I counter? And so this is also scientific literacy. If we want to engage deeply with these scientists, we really need to understand what it is that they're saying. And we don't as a, as a community. Mm. And I think that if you pick up, you know, 
any any number of Vaishnav books on the topics of evolution or whatever, you know. These might be appealing to uneducated devotees, but if you show this to someone who's studied evolution in a, in a university, mm. they're not. They're going to think we're like quaint, sort of like backwards people. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, rant, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> so in our, um, it, it was a lovely rant. Thank you. <laughs> um, in our previous conversation, you were talking about um, being in academia, right? Teaching in, in college, you realized that when it comes to, you know, the, sort of the disparity between men and women who are interested in science, yeah. um, um, encouraging women in the sciences, this sounds like it's a departure, but, I, but I'm getting somewhere with it. Encouraging women in the sciences has to come sooner than college. They have to be yeah. They have to be encouraged much younger, and so this had a lot to do with your your interest in working with younger younger students. Yeah, and it seems like so now you're working at the Bhaktivedanta Academy in Alachua, and you're a science teacher for sixth through tenth graders, right? Seventh through tenth graders, yeah. Seventh through tenth graders. Um, so uh, that formative age that you were talking about earlier, where um, um, it really, really matters what we're hearing and who we're learning from and the environment um, of uh, language that's happening. And just from this perspective of um, sort of becoming well-rounded, educated devotees who can have doubts and can explore, um, it, it sounds like such a blessing that you're bringing to the community to bring these young devotees into the fold of becoming literate um, and in that way sort of becoming um, fearless, I think, in, in themselves to, to tackle these bigger questions. How has that experience been for you this first year? Well, first of all, let me just say that it's uh, it's really the biggest blessing on me uh, that I have an opportunity to do such a service, and um, like really, not a day or a moment goes by where I'm not almost like overwhelmed with gratitude uh, towards the community and these kids' parents um, and the management of the school for you know mm -hmm. even giving me an opportunity to do this, um, and that is really. Um, you know, it's it's really like the perfection of my life. Like, what else, wow. what else could I do with the skills that I've acquired in my life other than help raise Krishna's children? Um, and so, really, it's I I am the primary benef beneficiary of this. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, as far as the kids are concerned. Yeah, again, it's not for me. It's not so much teaching the, like the factual content of science, and especially in today's day and age, if someone wants to know something, all of these kids are better at Googling things than I am. That's actually not true. Um, <laughs> and the reason why that's not true is because nobody's taught them research skills. And so that's what we're teaching them. We're teaching them how to use Google appropriately, you know, how okay. to find the information you need, how to know when the information you're reading is good information or whether it's fake news. Um, and so these are the skills that we want to give Krishna's kids, you know, um, all of these kids come from high births. Um, and I know from speaking to, uh, you know, Krishna's children who are my age, that 
you know, constantly having the community and their parents tell them they're of such high birth, like they're mm-hmm. the children of gods, maybe not the most helpful thing. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's creating too many expectations for kids. But from mm-hmm. my perspective, that is the reality. Um, you know, and Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that one who teaches this science, this knowledge to my devotees, he is very dear to me. And I am very dear to him. So that's a major motivating force for me. But really what we want to do is give these kids the skills they need to go out in the world and make a difference. Um, you know, And that means understanding emotional intelligence, social intelligence, how to interact with people, how to be compassionate and empathic, but also how to draw your boundaries when you need to. Um, and it also involves understanding the very precarious situation that humanity is mm-hmm. in right now. Uh, and so we do a lot of ecology, um, mm. learning, uh, understanding our carbon foot footprint, I guess. Mm. Um, and then also just how to be healthy. Like I know in my own life, I didn't, I didn't really learn how to take care of my own physical health until mm. I was practically 40 years old, you know, and th- th- I only figured it out from living on, on, on a relatively unhealthy lifestyle until then. Mm. Even being a vegetarian, you know, it's so easy to be unhealthy. Um, not get proper exercise, not eat a proper diet, not understand, um, you know, how the, how the food we put in our mm. body is actually processed and used by the body. And so I think that this is all really essential knowledge for children. And I do think the, this is the right age to be teaching it. Um, it is a, it is a challenging program. Um, all of our classes are honors classes. And then it's also beyond that it's accelerated. You know, we expect these kids to do really in three years or three or four years, what other people do in six. Wow. Um, um, and so uh, we, we hope that we're preparing them well. Uh, really, our goal is, is that when they leave our school and go off to another school, they're like, oh, wow, this is way easier than it was in that other place. That Those are reviews that I have that gotten. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was, I mean, my contract here is winding down anyway. I was looking for another engagement. I, I did become a little bit disillusioned with being just a mundane scientist. Also, like, you know, even working in renewable energy, there's a really a limited outcomes for mm. what I'm able to do. Um, and so, you know, and I'm just one guy, you know, I remember we had this situation where uh, one of one of our kids left the school in the middle of the school year. So the, the pandemic, you know, created some social dynamics, being in school and not being in school, you know, parents have different ideas of what to do with the kids. And anyway, the kid, the kid left our school and went, went to a public school. And I was heartbroken for weeks, you know, and I just met this kid. Like, what, what is this kid to me? What is this kid's parents to me? Really? I just met these people a month ago. And there's like, suddenly this like huge hole in my heart where this kid used to sit. And, um, like, why am I getting so emotional about this? Like, what's going on here? And at one point I realized, you know what, if I keep doing this job, there's going to be hundreds of these kids coming in and out of my life and I'd better get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) But also that really there are going to be hundreds of these kids coming in, in and out of my life. And I know that if I can inspire one of them or two of them or three of them to greatness or give them just that little you know, that little bit of courage they need to go find their own path in life or to do something really extraordinary, then I'm going to wind up doing a lot more for the world than I would alone. You know, it's like the old story we, we tell about Sangerton yeah. devotees, like 
Mm. Somebody can go out on the street and sell 50 books, 100 books, 150 books. But if that person can organize 10 other people to go out and do that, and that forces them to stay off the streets, but meanwhile, they just you know, organize that 10 other people are each distributing 100 books a day. Well, now that guy's distributing 1,000 books. That's how I feel about it. It's so nice because it's very clear that, you know, I mean, as a teacher, we are imbibing so many things on students besides the content of, you know, the, the academic course. But as a devotee teacher, it, it's just, um, like you said, I mean, there's just so many layers of, of and depth of importance of those relationships. Um, I can imagine it's extremely rewarding. And and now you're, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of other people out there like myself who are, who are scratching their head going, you know, yes, that's what we want to do too. Like we want, we want to, we want a piece of that. You know, we want to take part. Well, in that I mean, I also have to say that the, all of what you just said, and then add to that the extra dimension of the history of education, especially kids education in ISKCON. And then that responsibility has even wow. felt that much more strongly by me, you know, to not, um, not only not recreate the mistakes of the past, but to, but to deliberately and intentionally create a different environment. Yes. Um, you know, we're not only like, okay, so we're not sending these kids to these horrible abusive schools anymore, but the other end of the spectrum is actually, we're sending these kids to the best school in the entire South of the United States, you know, mm -hmm. That's that's the standard of education that that we should aspire for throughout ISKCON. Um, you know, and when we when we see that you know we ISKCON spends hundreds of millions of dollars on temple worship, and that's all fine and good. You know, we should worship Krishna beautifully in our temples. There's no doubt about it. But we don't even spend one percent of that on education. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. so the, and if we if we go back and we read, you know, Prabhupada's points about the found, founding of ISKCON. This is all about education. You know, mm -hmm. Prabhupada did not really come to the West to teach us how to worship in Vedic temples. Mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a side right. issue. Prabhupada came to the West to develop a Brahminical class of people to give us a head where we don't have one. Um, mm. And that should be the aim of the Hare Krishna movement is to develop a class of Brahmanas. And Brahmanas doesn't only mean we know how to tie a turban on and ride around on an elephant and chant mm. mantras. It also means that we are content experts mm. in various realms of academia. You know, Brahmanas are reading and writing questions and answers. And so I would like to see um, ISKCON move more in this direction. We should be investing mm -hmm. money education starting from very little education all the way to postgraduate studies you know yeah. for a half a percent of the money that they're spending on the temple in Mayapur we could set up a scholarship fund that would send five devotees to college a year all expenses paid to study whatever they want you know and then what will those people go out in the world and do with that knowledge we see that devotees um, especially in in humanities uh, re theologians religious scholars um, people like my Guru Maharaj, Krishna Kshetraswami, Garuda Prabhu, um, Advaita Prabhu, a lot of Radhika Raman, you know, these people go out in the world and do extraordinary work. And by doing that work, they're automatically spreading the glories of Krishna. Mm. 
Mm. You know, when I, I, I preach here at the University of Alberta all the time without saying a word about Krishna. Mm. You know, I just come here, I do a good job every day, I get results, I educate people, and they all know I'm a Hare Krishna. I don't mm. have to say anything about Krishna. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what it means to lead by example. Mm -hmm. you know? And, but you need to, you need, people need to qualify themselves. And so I, I really think education is important. I think devotional education in primary and high schools is very important. And I think it's important for devotees who have that propensity, I'm talking about young people now, to go to college, you know, and don't just go to UF, go to Stanford, go to Harvard, go to Oxford, go to the top technical, go to MIT, you know, and don't be afraid to follow your interests just because somebody's telling you that this isn't Krishna conscious or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, right. because you'll find a Krishna conscious way to use your knowledge if you, you know. Right. Krishna is unlimited. Yeah. We can't, right. We can't put a box around Krishna or around what he can do with us. Yeah. All of these branches of knowledge are, are, are limbs of Krishna anyway. Yes. So I want to, I just want to um, reflect a minute on, on the Alachua community and say how remarkable it is that, you know, the Alachua temple and the deities there are some of the most beautiful deities and the service at the festivals are top notch, top notch. And yet at the same time, they are, um, the home of, like you said, what could be, if not is, the best school in the Southern United States. Um, and that emphasis on educating Krishna's children um, and how beautiful of an example that is. Also, I do hope, um, you know, I haven't talked to many parents of second generation devotees who now have children going to the school. But um, it sounds like, and I would hope that they feel that, you know, while we can't, um, we obviously can't reverse the past, that this is, you know, our way or your way of making reparations for the past and continually refining and refining our service to Krishna's children. And um, hopefully provides a tangible source of healing um, in seeing how, how things ideally can be done, um, to support their kids and to see their kids get something, something different, something beautiful, something whole, something healthy. Yeah. Amen to that. I hope so. And I'm sure, um, listening to you, I'm sure, um, because the, the teachers and the, and the, administration of the school is just they're really you all are really special people so thank you thank you i mean it's uh yeah i'd like to second that the other teachers in the administration of the school I, I mean you know i've i've worked a lot of jobs at this point in my life and i've been in a lot of different professional environments and i would not i mean jai shri Rade asked me you know i was planning on going to florida to spend some time with my parents during the pandemic last year uh, Joshi Rade, who I know from, we were both on the board of directors of the Krishna House way back when, um, 
And then we also took some graduate classes together in the College of Education at UF. So I, I've known her for a while. And somehow she must have saw my Facebook page or whatever that I was planning on going back to Florida. And she asked me if I wanted to teach science at the Bhaktivedanta Academy. And I really said yes without thinking about it. Um, because why would anybody say no to that? I mean, it's just, why would I say no to that? Mm. But um, wow. But then looking at, but then, you know, I have to do a little bit of due diligence also, and I'm not, you know, I've, I've also seen enough of the other side of the Hare Krishna movement where things are not professionally done and the leadership is not qualified and people are just winging it. And I, I honestly, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with any of that. You know, I don't need to, my need to belong to a religious community is not so strong um, that I'm willing to put up with just ridiculousness. Um, and we have none of that at the Bhaktivedanta Academy. Um, every teacher that I can tell, everybody in the administration is really just like topmost standard of professionalism. Um, and so that's, that is encouraging. For someone like me who has had a secular career and mm. can continue doing very well in a secular, mm. secular career, that is really reassuring. It's really important. Yeah. 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 Also the international, so the, you know, K through six and pre-K through six, we do the Montessori program, which I think most people are familiar with and is widely known. For the older kids, we do the international baccalaureate program, which is like the largest international high school diploma agency. And their curriculum is no joke. I mean, this is mm. for real. These kids are getting a good education in a, in a, in a very loving and caring family environment. So and in addition, feel free to give a donation. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> can we donate our kids? <laughs> As can donate your kids. I mean, yes. um, so um, no, but that was a good plug. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so we're going to wrap up in, in, in a little bit, but I did want to cover a few more things. One was, you know, you also teach karate, right? You teach physical education. Is karate a part of what you teach at the school? We did do, I, um, I'm, I'm more of a student of karate than a, than a teacher of karate. Um, okay. So, yeah. okay. So but yes, uh, I did teach a little bit of karate. Okay. So they got a taste of it. Now you, you've been a student of karate for a long time, right? How long? Uh, so about seven years. Okay. And you just spent, I don't know, a month with your sensei. Is that correct? Uh, I spent about two weeks, weeks uh, uh, last month and I'll probably spend two more weeks with them before the school starts. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I just have a few questions about karate. First of all, what is it? Let's start, let's start with that. Okay, karate is a is a is a martial discipline. It's a combat discipline uh, that comes from uh, what is now a Japanese island called Okinawa. Although Okinawa historically is not really part of Japan, um, it's been kind of caught in trade wars and regular wars between China and Japan over throughout history. Really, it's culturally a little bit closer and geographically a little bit closer to China, and so what is known as Karate comes from Okinawa, but it has its roots really back in China. And then it was brought to mainland Japan at the turn of the century where it became kind of Japan, Japanized. Japan okay. Japanized. <laughs> um, but I see karate, and this is a, a, a I also see Krishna consciousness like this. Um, for me, it's, it's a form of indigenous knowledge. 
change. Um, okay. It's, it, um, and it's, it's uh, what else can I say? It's so many different things. It's self-defense, it's discipline, it's physical education, it's uh, spiritual discipline, it's etiquette. Uh, there's so many parallels I find between practicing mm. martial arts and practicing yoga. Mm. That's what um, I was curious about it being as um, committed to it as you are. How, you know, it must be very complementary to your Krishna consciousness. It sounds like you're saying this. Yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, complementary is a good word. You know, I, I have my, my, my bhakti sadhana in the morning and I have my karate sadhana in the evening and they, they mm. really, they really go hand in hand with each other. Um, karate is for me is a, is a moving meditation. Um, there's a, there's sort of an adage or an aphorism in Japanese culture that says that some types of personal transformation can only be awakened through intense physical discipline. Um, and so mm, wow. who works with their mind a lot, sitting behind a computer, mm, thinking, mm -hmm. writing, typing, to put all of that away and then have a couple hours of the day dedicated for just like putting my consciousness into my body in a very detailed and comprehensive and complex way is, mm. uh, is really healthy for me. Yeah. Right. Because it, it sounds like I'm just thinking about different types of exercise and I, and I, I know all exercise is really good, but this is, this sounds comprehensive. Yeah. Well, the best form of exercise is the exercise that you're going to do. Uh, right. So I'm not <laughs> <laughs> there was, I was I passed, uh, I passed people on the trail the other day and they're, they're standing there like out of breath, like, oh my God. And uh, one of them asked me, I just walking by, one of them asked me, how much longer is it? And I, I told them, it's going to take you forever if you're just standing there. <laughs> you got to move if you want to get anywhere. Yeah, no, the best form of exercise is the exercise that you do. And also within martial arts, there's a lot of um, debate over which is the most the best martial art or the most practical martial art. And it, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had, I had an eighth grader tell me, you know, karate is not that useful because it takes many years to get good enough at to defend yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That, but that's true for any martial art. Like if you want to be good at something, you need to spend years practicing. Mm. It. Um, and so I, I don't have a dogmatic thing. I fell into this particular um, form of martial art almost by accident, but then my teacher in Atlanta is, uh, he's what's known as the Dai Senpai of the school, which means he's the highest ranked student um, in the world. Uh, he's 75 years old, so he has quite a lot of experience. So it's like being connected with the Parampara right at the source, hmm. um, which is also nice. It's traditional, it's traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge. Um, and it's useful too, like I'm not, you know, if, um, I'm confident that I would be able to defend myself if somebody starts messing with me. <laughs> what are, what are, what is your belt now? Uh, I'm a brown belt. Of course, in Okinawa, belt mean no need rope hold up pants, according to Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> um, the belt system is something that was introduced by the Japanese to okay. the Okinawans um, in order to kind of formalize rank. Um, okay. And it's different, you know, that's that's always a question people ask about karate is what's your belt so it's different from different schools i know people who've gotten black belts after two years hmm. i've been going for seven still working on it 
Um, I know people with black belts who would stand no chance in a fight against me. And I also know mm. people with white belts who would beat the crap out of me morning, noon, and night. So wow. yeah, the belt, the belt system is next to meaningless. And, okay. And that's, it holds up your pants. <laughs> it, it holds the uniform together. Yeah. I mean, I am interested in pursuing getting a black belt because I'm interested in teaching. You know, I'm interested in opening my own dojo one day just because I think Mm, wow. uh, you know, this is good for people. It's good for kids to put down their iPads for a few hours a day and get some physical activity. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> We're amen in it all today. Hallelujah. Um, okay. So I want to wrap up with your work with the BI. Oh, but before okay. we do that, uh, we I, another well, hour. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, no, um, no. Okay. no. Before we do that, I'm going to do a quick rapid fire. Just to okay. break it up, right? You want to crack your knuckles? We're good. Okay. Rapid fire for Pracharananda Prabhu. Paneer pakoras or homemade pizza? Paneer pakoras. Oh, I thought that was going to be harder. Favorite genre-inspired style of kirtan? What do you mean by genre-inspired? Bluegrass, reggae, traditional, uh, salsa, reggaeton. Swami's kirtans. Who? Naranjana Swami. Okay. Naranjana Swami genre inspired. Traditional. Traditional. Simple melodies that everybody can follow along. Mm, okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Very good. Okay. Current reading material. I'm currently reading the autobiography of one Mr. Greg Allman. I have no idea who Greg Allman is. Greg Allman was half of the Allman brothers. Uh, oh, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> half of the Allman brothers. You've taken a lot of road trips in lieu of flying, it seems. What's your favorite road trip pit stop? Road trip pit stop? I mean, I know you, bigger than a pit stop. I mean, your pit stops are like national parks. What's your favorite? My favorite national park? Your favorite road trip pit stop. <sighs> Could be a gas station or a national park. Uh, this, Maybe this one is, of your many's. The, uh, uh, this this is an unanswerable question. I apologize. I stumped you. Okay. You <laughs> I stumped you. Okay. How many rocks do you have in your possession? I have no rocks in my possession. I stopped collecting rocks many years ago because I believe that First of all, rocks are living entities and they are where they are for a reason. And I think that especially when we talk about the healing power of rocks and crystals and whatnot, they're actually most powerful when they're left where they are. Like we can use a crystal like to heal someone locally, but globally that crystal will be more powerful if it's just left where it is. I have no rocks in my possession. I do not. Collect. Wow. Yeah. Um, what is I have favorite? collected many rocks. No more. What is your favorite rock? My favorite, <laughs> I was thinking about that today. Uh, my favorite rocks are Nices, G-N-E-I-S-S-E-S, Nices. These are heavy duty metamorphosed rocks, metamorphic rocks. Nices are nice. They and are. I will Google them later. Um, are, they, are they beautiful? They are the most beautiful rocks, of course. Why would I okay. love an ugly, an ugly rock? Okay, tell us a little known fact about yourself, about yourself, something really odd. 
Um, <laughs> I am completely ambidextrous. Awesome. Yeah. That's a good one. Hard to beat. Use three words to describe yourself as a high schooler. Man, this is the slowest, slowest rapid fire I've ever done. I know. Um, this is for all your students out there, you know, that are going to yeah, be watching I'm to this. Something that's not too inappropriate. Does that, oh, here we go. Here we go. Ready? Ready? Disaster narrowly averted. <laughs> okay. So that was like, not just three words to describe you. I think that was a hike. Well, that wasn't a haiku, but it was, it was a, it was a sentence. It was a sentence. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, do you have a favorite form of service or aspect of bhakti? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I've noticed that over the course of my devotional life, it has changed. Um, you know what it is like, there's been times where it's been Japa or there've been times where it's been book distribution or there are times where it's been reading the Bhagavatam and that's like really where I put all of my energy and today it's really in teaching Krishna's kids and, and getting up and going to work every day. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Rapid fire commenced or rapid fire ceased. Fire. We'll just call it fire. <laughs> it's fired. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. So you said that you could talk about the BI for for hours more, and I'm sure you could. And I hope that um, keeping this segment short as the finale won't be a, a misservice, a no, disservice to I'll keep it. it I, can, I can also keep it short. Um, but I know this is fascinating and I do have a few questions and I'm just gonna open it up to you if you'd like to um, just take off from there. But um, what I wanted to ask you was, um, Is gone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so the BI has a new headquarters in Gainesville, right? That was yes. recently purchased. Yes. And um, I wanted to know about, you know, what are some the some of the goals of the BI? Have some of those been met already? I know it's been, you know, the BI has been in um, existence for some time now, and um, what are some some goals that are hot on the table right now that we're that we're working towards if there are yeah so the bi has been around for a long time uh it was founded originally by Srila Prabhupada in uh, 1975 um and its first major event was something called the life comes from life conference that they mm. uh, had in Vrindavan in 1977 shortly before Srila Prabhupada um left his body um Prabhupada left actually very few specific instructions for the BI. A lot of them centered around the idea that life comes from life and proving that life comes from life, but he did not stick around long enough to elaborate on that too much. Um, um, and so there was this life comes from life conference after Srila Prabhupada left the planet, uh, the BI kind of splintered into some different factions. Uh, one, uh, that was largely headed up by Bhakti Srup Damodar Maharaj, and the other one um, that was kind of more local in Alachua was headed up by Sadaputa Prabhu. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the BIHS, the Bhaktivedanta Institute for Higher Studies, which is sort of the Gainesville branch of the, of the BI, and there are, okay. there are other BIs out there in the world too. So it's not that we're the only one here in Alachua. Okay. Uh, but this is, this is coming very much through the lineage of Sadaputra Prabhu. And it actually grew kind of organically out of the management of Sadaputra Prabhu's library, uh, which is managed okay. jointly by um, uh, Mother Prishni and uh, Stita D. Muni. Prabhu's. Sorry if I'm leaving anybody out, so I'm getting the uh, story. Is Krishna Kripa Prabhu involved in that too? I feel like I... Krishna Kripa is involved with us a little bit. He does a lot of secretarial work for us. He's an excellent note taker. So when we have a uh, conference, he's usually taking notes, uh, which is okay. good. Um, as far as what we're trying to do now, we're trying to, um, first of all, understand more deeply what Prabhupada's uh, vision for the BI was. Um, and then also, it expanded a little broader. So a couple of things we've done in last years is we had a very large conference uh, with over 500 people in attendance called Consciousness and Science. Mm. Um, We've had a couple smaller conferences since then. Uh, We've been working jointly with the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium to provide scientific input in the exhibits that they're developing for the museums. Um, uh, But really what we're focused on now, especially now that we have some facility um, is printing books. Uh, we want to we want to get more books out there, and we have um, another thing, especially uh, Brahmatirta Prabhu has done a really excellent job of is creating a central database of all scientists within ISKCON. Anybody that's got higher education in the sciences, you know, we've created a record of this, and we try to find ways to engage people in using their scientific knowledge in Krishna consciousness. Um, and so, but the main, uh, our main funder over the last few years has been the BBT and the BBT likes books. So we're trying to publish some more. Great. What kind of books are you printing? Are you printing BBT books or are these your own books? Um, it depends on the book itself. So I'm working on a book, uh, called leaps of faith and doubt. And we talked a little bit earlier about how scientists takes a leap of doubt and remains skeptical and how a religious person takes a leap of faith. They choose to believe things. Uh, that'll be a BBT book. That'll be a book that's meant to um, be distributed on the street by book distributors. Uh, we've so that's doing- a book that you're writing? Yeah. Okay. So, wow. So the BI is publishing its own books through the BBT. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, yeah, that's something I didn't know. Some books on cosmology, some fifth canto issues. We've had three conferences now on uh, exploring fifth canto issues. Um, uh, sort of a spinoff of that is we've done a little bit of work and a little bit of research on the flat earth controversy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, wow. I wrote a, I wrote a short essay about that, which, uh, got reworked into a much larger book that Prishni and Stita D. Mooney are writing. I believe it's called a, a flat book on the round earth, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is basically debunking the notion that first of all, anywhere in the Puranas, it says that the earth is flat. That's just not true. Okay. Um, the idea that the Earth is flat is coming into ISKCON from other places, um, but also this is this is a discussion that's not new to the 21st century. It's a resurgent discussion in the 21st century. This has been mm. discussed and rehashed amongst Vedic academics for at least 1,500 years. Um, okay. So we're just to put that information out, not because we think that we're going to convince flat Earthers that they're wrong, um, but we we can potentially inoculate confused innocent people against all of the nonsense that's out there and i do say nonsense quite deliberately <laughs> okay 
And there's some others, uh, you know. Well, you said issue. So this this word that you used interests me. You said issues in the in the fifth canto. So clearly, you know, um, you know, we can say that truthfully that sometimes it seems, I don't know, impossible to grasp the realities of you know Vedic cosmology or science. And so when you say you're tackling issues, is it that you're sort of reconciling modern science? You're seeing how it can be true. You're investigating how it can be true. Is that right? Um, truth is an interesting concept. I'm more interested in meaning in this regard. Like, what does it mean? Uh, is, mm, okay. What, what, is, what is truth? You know, what is the meaning of all of this? Uh, we know historically that even Srila Prabhupada did not understand these topics of the fifth canto that deeply. He was not satisfied with his own translation of them. And in fact, two of his leading disciples at that time have told me completely independently from each other, two completely different conversations, that Prabhupada told them to rewrite it. Um, and in fact, Prabhupada sent one of them all around South India looking for astrologers that might be able to make more sense of this than Srila Prabhupada thought he could. Um, and so when I read the fifth canto now, um, Srila Prabhupada's purports are not that um, elaborative. They're not that mm -hmm. revelatory. Uh, when he does write purports of topics in the fifth canto, he's mostly just translating Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's purports into English or using the purport or using some hook in the verse just to talk about bhakti. Um, and so I think okay. if we read Srila Prabhupada's work on the fifth canto, it, 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 it leaves a lot to the imagination. Mm. <laughs> um, and so when we talk about truth or exploring the issues, um, my interest as sort of the facilitator as of these dialogues has been to collect different points of view. I think that um, within our own internal dialogue within ISKCON, we need to be more comfortable with plurality of thought. Mm, okay. You know, that we don't need a party line for everything. There is a Vaishnava Siddhanta, of course, and I'm not saying that you know everybody can make up their own Vaishnava Siddhanta, but is the structure of the universe a matter of Siddhanta? Mm, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know the answer to that question. It's not the same as saying, um, you know, that Jiva is an individual spark of Krishna that has Krishna's qualities, but to a limited extent. That's a different thing than saying, you know, the moon is located here relative to the mm, earth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't I don't know. Um, and, my opinion, the point of it is to discuss it, mm. right? That's the, that's where the Krishna consciousness is. We'll never get and, to understand it. And to find, to find yeah. adventure and excitement in discussing it, right? That it, it is, yes. it's intriguing. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we did this whole thing um, on Boom Mandala with the seventh and eighth graders and in me preparing these lesson plans to teach them Boom Mandala. And for them, it was an art lesson, but it was art using scale. And so there was science in there as well. Um, but in me researching Boom Mandala, I realized that if people want to take this literally, which is what a, a lot of people try to do when they say the moon is further from the earth and the sun or whatever, they're trying to take it literally, but if you want to take it literally, it says boo mandala. So what is a mandala? A mandala is an object of meditation, right? Mm. It's a geometric design that is an object of meditation and boo mandala is described. And so in my opinion, and that's all this is, is that we're supposed to meditate on boo mandala. We're not necessarily supposed to understand what it means. 
we're supposed to meditate on it and discuss it. That's Krishna. Wow. That's Krishna Kata. Um, so, I, you know, people want to take the description of Bhumanda as a little literal description of the earth. I find that kind of difficult. Um, I think that any literal interpretation of a scripture is difficult, especially if the scripture has been translated. Um, so well, also, my personal interest, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. So my personal interest in this is I would like, and I'm not qualified to really study this on my own, but if there's anybody out there listening who is, I'm interested in the development of the language of the fifth canto mm, mm. Uh, because the language of the fifth canto where all of these supposedly controversial topics are discussed is dramatically different than the language of the rest of the Bhagavatam. Wow. And we know that the Bhagavatam is also always expanding, right? It started with four verses. Wow. And then it expanded to 18,000 verses. Now it's 18,000 verses with purports. So when did this mm. part of the fifth canto get expanded into it and by whom? And then when we talk about earth and when we talk about dimensions of space, what are those Sanskrit words that are used here? And do they vary? Is it always boo mandala when it talks about earth or are there are other words that are used? I don't know the answers to these questions. Um, but when I think of boo mandala, I, I don't think about this round planet earth that we're living on. I think of earthly spheres or earthly realms um, and given the, the vast expanse of our galaxy and our universe, there may be billions of earthly realms out there. You know, so I don't, this is, this is what I mean by issues, you know, well, where do, it, how do it, people it, understand these things? Right. And it's, it's cool because you're saying, in my opinion, which I think, you know, in our circles can be somewhat controversial to say something like that. But what you've given evidence to is that Srila Prabhupada himself invited his disciples to explore and to try and understand the language better or um, the translations better because he he felt himself limited but he knew that there was more out there to be discovered and he gave up his blessings basically to continue researching that yeah and be beyond um, just this one topical issue also he, in, he encouraged us to discuss these things from all angles of vision Mm. So that's well, it me when you were talking about you know um uh when you were talking about um you know what is bumandala i'm thinking of you know the elephant when everyone's eyes are closed and everyone is touching it in a different place and describing it differently so you know we um while something may you know be presented in modern science one way or in vedic science another way it could all just be the same truth the same um existential truth described in different ways yeah. so so these issues aren't um coming back sort of, sort of circling back they don't have to be and they and um they don't have to be faith breaking in fact they can just be a deepening of our exploration of krishna's energy correct yeah it doesn't have to be faith breaking <laughs> um you know and in fact discussing these topics amongst devotees even though there may be disagreements or even though we might not arrive at a conclusion can be faith affirming. You know, we can see right. that, you know, there, uh, for, for example, um, you know, the devotee who's mainly been in charge of developing the model over the last few years for the temple of the Vedic planetarium, um, you know, he, he's coming at it from a fairly literal, fairly fundamentalist, I say without, you know, condescension point of view, um, and I might not agree with all of that all the time, but he is able to stand up in front of a 
crowd and argue very forcefully for why he's doing what he's doing and why there's a need for that in ISCON. Mm. You know? And I, this is, I think, a, a, an often heard complaint about liberalism in, in mm. general. I'm a pretty liberal guy, so I'm not harping on liberals now. But, um, you know, one of the drawbacks of liberalism is that in, in, in the sphere of liberalism, nobody wants to hear any conservative thought. Mm. <laughs> but conservative thought is so important. You know, we should want to hear people with other points of view from ours. That was right. Lord Sultani listening to Sarvabhum Bhattacharya. Right. I don't want to belong to a society where everybody just believes the same thing. You know, I don't want to always like and agree and want to do everything that all of my friends are doing. I am an individual living entity. And what makes me an individual is that I have individual desires and I have individual perspectives and I have individual opinions and outlooks on the world. And it's coming together in the Association of Devotees and discussing these things with a mood of enriching each other's lives is what really makes the Association of Devotees valuable for me. It's not being in a group of like-minded people. That's a, That sounds like a snooze fest to me. <laughs> well, I've never, honestly speaking, you know, for as um, sort of philosophically aligned as many of us are, I've never met uh, a rowdier bunch of, like a motlier crew <laughs> than, than, right. than the devotees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, where else are you going to be in, this, in, the, in the same room with people who you would never associate with, you know, in, on a material level normally? And yet we're, we're all, we're family. Yeah. And somehow we all more or less kind of get along. Mm. Right. So you're, I, I love this as sort of um, one, one parting note is to relish, relish our diversity, relish our difference of opinion to engage with it um, rather than avoid it. Yeah. And in that way, I think, I, I think you're pointing towards something really powerful, which is that all this, you know, makes us a much stronger society, a much more, a, a realer society. Yeah, yeah, authenticity. Mm -hmm. And it, I think a, a lot of it also has to do with integrity as well. You know, that we, you know, when, when we are taking Krishna consciousness as an artificial imposition on our, on our minds, meaning when we engage with Krishna consciousness from the platform of dogma, we are actually not being our authentic selves. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, auth authenticity, integrity, uh, these are important. <laughs> wow. This has been really great. Yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm so grateful. And um, I'm wondering if you, if you have any additional, you know, sort of like a nectar bite, a parting thought, something um, that's just on your mind after this conversation that you want to impart and you can take your time to think. And, and if not, then we'll just not not really i just want to thank you for doing this uh doing this service for the community and for giving me also an opportunity um you know i'm i'm kind of person that lives in the shadows a little bit um and so i know there's a lot of people out there in the community that might have heard about me or heard that there's a new teacher mm. that, that don't know me um or might have heard something about me from somebody else that thinks they know me and then you know um, so I'm just uh, grateful that you're doing this and that you've given me an opportunity to to speak a little bit and um, hopefully it all will continue to go well. <laughs>
Thank you so much. It's um, hearing from you has been really illuminating. And, um, you know, it, it is, um, I think it's really special for all of us to learn about these amazing personalities who, who make up our lives and who, um, that we wave to, that we see and, and to know like, there's just, there's just such a wealth of, of nectar inside of each person. I'm sorry. I'm just going to, I'm just going to share a recent thought and it's inspired by conversations like these is that everyone has a very unique expression and, um, taking in of Krishna consciousness. And so to give us the chance to hear from you helps us to grow. So I, I hope that this is, um, I hope that Pracharananda Prabhu has encouraged a lot of you out there who may wonder what they have to say or that, you know, they're a behind the scenes devotee. Um, they're not well known in the community or whatever that we, we want and we need to hear from you. And so come forward and, and, and yeah. get ready to be interviewed because um, we are, we want to, we want to hear from everyone. Thank you, Prabhu. This has yeah, been such you. a pleasure and right. um, best of luck wrapping up your, your work and your life in Edmonton and get coming back to us. Will you be making a road trip out of that also? I mean, I got my car here and all my stuff, so I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. I'm packing up my office. I'm closing down my lab. I'm loading up my car with the rest of my stuff and I'm coming back. Okay. Well, we'll see you soon. Yes, we'll see you soon. Hi, right. Krishna. Hi, Krishna. You.